said. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. While I fix this contraption. Last week we looked at this passage and the context of the passage is suffering. The context of this passage is Christian suffering and the reason why is because the Christian faith is a faith that is about hope. The Christian religion is a religion of hope. And the fires of hope are stoked by the kindling of suffering. Suffering is integral to the Christian faith because it's integral to hope. What is there to hope for if there's no suffering? If everything is good now, why am I hoping for later? What I'm hoping is that now continues. And perhaps this whole COVID stuff uh, has awakened us a little bit to the reality that this life is not supposed to be normal. Because what's normal for the Christian is suffering. In fact, if you look at it in Romans chapter 8, where I just asked you to turn, if you look at verses 16 to 17, look at how important suffering is for the Christian. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, how do you know you are a rightful heir with Christ, that you are a child of God? The warm fuzzies inside, that might play a part, but not not biblically speaking. The Spirit Himself bears witness, not with warm fuzzies, but by reminding you that we suffer. Verse 17, and if we're children, then heirs, and if we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, and we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified. Do you see how it is impossible to remove suffering from the equation, because then the equation doesn't work. So suffering is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And what Paul is specifically talking about, of course, I think this passage has a lot to apply to aging and disease and the horrible diagnosis you receive from the doctor, pain, disabilities, traumas. It applies to those things, but the specific context is suffering the kind of suffering that Christ suffered, which is persecution. So that when Jesus said, take up your cross to follow me, he doesn't mean suffer through diseases. That stuff everyone has to suffer through. Taking up your cross means be executed for me. Be willing to take lashes for following me. Now the reason why it's difficult to preach that in our context today is because we don't experience the kind of persecution that Christians experience all over the world today. Open Doors USA uh, manages a website where you can go there right now uh, uh, and, and see their list of the top 50 countries or regions all over the world where it is the most difficult to be a Christian. They have different categories for the kinds of difficulties that Christians experience all over the world, and I would commend for you to read through that list And see what it's like to be a Christian in North Korea. That's what Paul mainly has in mind. Not having a cough, but being torn away from your family, from your loved ones. Being tortured, jailed, or even killed. 
for your faith. Can that happen here? Can that, can that happen in the United States? I mean, just go on social media. How do they feel about your Christian views? Later, today, post something on social media from a biblical perspective on sexuality. A biblical perspective on raising your kids, not having your kids choose their own identity, choose their own genders. Just post something. Tell people what the rainbow actually means. And then imagine a few years from now. I mean, could you imagine what we're dealing with now even 10 years ago? Things happen fast. Things go bad fast. And we don't want to say, well, things will never happen to this Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation. Sorry to wake you up to that fact. This, we're, we're not in a Christian nation. And persecution is a reality not just for some Christians in some places. It's for a reality for Christians everywhere. And we shouldn't be so arrogant to think this text doesn't quite apply to us. And we shouldn't be so ignorant as to just sort of mildly apply it to when we're not feeling too well or we lose a job. Those are difficulties to be sure. But this passage is preparing our hearts and our minds for what might come that is going to be far worse than having to wear a mask. Paul makes sure that we understand how to receive suffering rather than trying to live a life that dodges suffering. And so we looked at the context last week. He tells us that the, the, Christians, the suffering that Christians experience is not a major problem. It's not a deal killer. It's difficult, but it's not going to destroy us. Why? For two reasons. One, because of the glory that awaits us, the glory that's coming. And two, because God will see you through it. He explains God will see you through it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in verses 26 and following. I commend for you to read through that. We're looking at that first reason, the glory that's coming, the glory that awaits us because we have a very fuzzy view of the glory. When we think of what glory looks like and is going to be like, we tend to think of interminable worship services, you know, with, a, with an invocation at the beginning that lasts four eons, you know, like it's eternity. We're going to play golden instruments. We're going to have little flappy wings that don't really work. I mean, it's this ambiguous, murky view of glory. Well, of course we can't hope in that. It's so ethereal. We don't even know what we're hoping in. But he tells us, as we looked at last week, actually we're talking about the earth. Heaven is a holding place. The new earth is the landing place. So he explains that in the first several verses when he Opens up with verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, if you have a small view of the glory that's coming and have a big view of the suffering that's happening to you now, the scales will never tip for you. And Paul is trying to tip the scales for you not by minimizing the suffering, but by maximizing the glory that outweighs the suffering. Even if you're flogged, even if you're jailed, even if you're torn from your family, the glory coming far outweighs even that. So we have to take our small view of what is coming and allow Scripture to inflate it so it can outweigh whatever we experience, whatever comes our way. 
And he helps us understand that this is an earthly hope, an earthly experience. He says, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When you and I are finally, when we finally arrive, we're fully experiencing the salvation that's been purchased for us. Creation is longing for that. Why? Because at that time, creation is also going to be freed from what it's been subjected to, the futility and not willingly because creation didn't do it. Creation didn't sin in the garden. Creation didn't bring on the curse. But God brought it to stoke hope at the end of verse 20. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When we're free, the earth is freed. Why is the earth freed? For God to throw it away? No, for us to do above and beyond what was, we were first tasked with in the garden. God didn't create man and say, I put you on this earth, it's really stinky, it, it's, it's, it's really hard to live here, so just survive it. No, it's go subdue it, go fulfill it, have kids and multiply, and take over the earth, explore this earth, discover nature, discover the laws of nature. Discover gravity, right? All these things that man is supposed to do and that we've been doing under corruption. It wasn't supposed to be under corruption in the beginning. So when we're freed, the earth is freed. Why? So we can live in it. I think that's great. Some would take that to say, the reason why we should care for creation is because God is not done with it yet. Well, God is going to destroy it, but not annihilate it. And there's a difference. This creation, as we see it now, is going to be uh, destroyed to be made new, but not annihilated, and some other planet is created. This planet will be renewed. And so I don't think we take care of creation because it's up to us to rescue it from bondage. No, it's not up to us. But we care for creation because we also understand what it is. It's God's. And it was put in place for us to enjoy. And so like I commended to you last week, get out there. <laughs> you know, you're going to experience part of the corruption. Let that remind you of what it's going to be. But, you know, go on some hikes. Before it gets too cold, go on some walks. Enjoy nature. Enjoy creation because it is what God has created us to be in forever. Not floaty clouds, but actual physical, tangible experience on this earth, but minus the corruption, minus the diseases, minus, hopefully, the pests. Definitely the pestilences. Then he tells us that it's not just creation that's groaning for it. It's not just creation that's longing for it, but we long for it in verse 23. Not only the creation this physical creation that's going to be redeemed, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Not disembodied souls floating around, haunting people in homes, right? Stuck between space and time, like... All these weird things that we might imagine is awaiting for us in the future. But a physical walking around, touching, right? A physical experience because your bodies, 
are awaiting redemption. We long for the redemption of these physical, actual bodies. We think of other passages. I don't want to go to them because I want to stick with this one, but you think of oh, Philippians 3 where Paul tells us our resurrection will be like Christ's resurrection. Our bodies will be like Christ's body. And you'll remember that Jesus left behind an empty tomb. He didn't leave behind a corpse as he walked around in a completely different corpse. Yet they had a hard time recognizing him, right? And we're told that our then bodies will be different than our now bodies. Well, of course they'll be different. You you can think of somebody who eats a really, really poor diet, and then they detox, and then they start eating really healthy foods, and their skin changes, their hair grows indifferently, their posture is better because they're exercising. That's just a meager transformation. We're talking about an ultimate makeover where there's no disease, there's no aging, there are no wrinkles. This is not an age-defying cream that's applied on top of a corrupted body, but a completely different body than the way it was before. So here's one way you can think of it, okay? We're going to get a new body, not another body. Makeover, not a swap, not an exchange. I think that means I will be Puerto Rican. I'm not going to be, I'm probably not going to be a seven foot dude, you know? It's kind of a small people by and large. You retain your ethnicities. We come from every tribe and every nation. It doesn't get erased, so we're all just one look-alike thing. And how are we coming from different tribes and different nations? Because the people that come from a certain tribe still look like that tribe. And so males are still males, and females are still females. And Latinos are still Latinos, and blacks are still blacks. And so we'll have features that keep us the same. Jesus didn't resurrect as some other ethnicity. He's he's Jewish. And I say he is Jewish. I hope you realize Jesus is embodied right now. As he told his disciples, you know, or or, uh, Mary, you know, don't don't touch me because I've got to go to the Father. Jesus didn't just sort of dissipate into molecules in the air and he's sort of theoretically with the Father. But that heaven is its own physical space in some way because Jesus inhabits it now in his physical body. And so our future will be physical as well. Our actual physical bodies with our talents and our features will be retained. What we're shedding is the corruptibleness of the body. The things that are here because of sin and the things about our bodies that don't work the way they're supposed to work, those will be removed. And that's something to hope in. Like I said, I think it does apply to those of you who your bodies are damaged, your bodies hurt, your bodies ache, your bodies, all of us, our bodies age. And of course, that's a kind of pain that we can look forward to being relieved But you need to cling to this truth, especially when it comes time to suffering for Christ. And that we can suffer even physical persecution for Christ because of the future of our bodies. 
Remember in Matthew 10, Jesus trains his disciples not to fear those who can only kill the body, fear the one who can kill both body and soul. But implied in that charge is to recognize that God is the one that saves both body and soul. So he doesn't separate the two, but that we experience a full-orbed redemption that includes our actual bodies. And we have a right to long for it. It's not weird to long for something physical. It's not weird to be excited about a body that can now bounce around like you used to when you were 17. It's right to long for that because that's what he tells us we do. He says not only the creation that longs and groans for it, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for this adoption. Of course, if you're in Christ, you've been adopted, but he means the full completion of the adoption. It's something that we long for. There are strains, I think, of Christianity, well, definitely historically, where it's maybe weird or maybe even wrong to long for such a thing. Because we have a low view of the things that are physical. We have a low view of the things that are material. In fact, back in this time, the early church, there was a rampant heresy going around that took different forms called Gnosticism. You may have heard of it. It's hard to nail down. It's hard to describe. They weren't all one type of person, but they did share a view of the world. Many of them even saying the God who created the material world wasn't ultimately God. It was like an enemy God, an ugly God, a different God. The God of the Old Testament that killed people, the wrathful God, he created the material universe, and we need to be freed from the material world so that we can be enlightened spirits. We need to be careful not to embrace that. God created physicality, and physicality is good. He created material and physicality and said it was good, didn't he? I think we need to be careful not to make the mistake of going, all God cares about is my spirit, my soul. Who cares what I eat? Who cares what I do with my body? God does, because he created it. And just because it's under corruption doesn't mean we just go, well, it's a sinking ship. Let's just blow more holes in it. I think we have a higher view of all of creation, including the creation that is our physical bodies that you will have for eternity. Right now it's under the bondage of corruption. Eventually it will be freed from it. Now, Paul doesn't go in here about health protocols or how to eat or anything like that. I just want to commend to you, you know, not to think of your body as something that it's going to die anyway, who cares? I'm going to be freed from this body. You're not going to be freed from this body. You're going to, your body is going to be freed from corruption. Many of us are worried about this COVID virus. We wear masks and we distance and a lot of us not going to work, and all these things, and some of us buy into it more than others, and it's hard to figure out who's right and who's wrong, and they keep changing things and all this kind of stuff. One of the things we can do something about is lower some of our comorbidities. And one of the ways to do that is probably eat less. I know this passage is not about health. I'm just saying if we do care about our bodies and we have a higher view of our bodies, we might want to think about taking better care of them. And I don't think it's just ironic 
that cultures that experience less persecution also experience greater amounts of wealth, and we overfeed. Constantly throwing stuff out of the fridge that we didn't get a chance to eat, stuff we didn't finish in restaurants because they serve us portions that feed four people. I'm so stuffed, you stick it in the fridge in the styrofoam box, it ends up in the garbage anyway. We throw out more food than lots of Christians all over the world eat. Is that because we don't really care about our bodies? And for those of us that are health nuts, how many of us care too much about our bodies? In other words, I'm so invested in my looks and my age and the age-defying cream. I've, I've got to eat less, not because it's a spiritual habit. I've got to eat less because my physicality is all I've got as the clock ticks down toward death. And that's not the right view either. Take care of your bodies because God created it. And we're not going to just get rid of them. But this is the uh, part of who you are forever. We need to embrace that fact. And the more we embrace that fact, the more we groan, the more we wait eagerly for that day when they will be perfected. When our bodies will be perfected. And it's a guaranteed promise, isn't it? In verse 23, not only the creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan and wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The first fruits of the Spirit. Remember in the Old Testament when God would demand the first fruits of the harvest? And they would give the first fruits of the harvest in honor to God in thanks and in anticipation of the rest of the harvest. In other words, the reason why it was important to bring the first fruits was because it was a sign, a pledge, a symbol that all the fruits are going to come in. Thank you, God, that this entire harvest is going to be here. I trust you that this entire harvest is going to come, and so I surrender the first fruits to you. If I don't trust you, if I don't trust you for the harvest, you know what I'm going to do with those first fruits? Save them. Keep them, because I don't know if there's going to be more. I mean, it's like tithing, isn't it? You take, take it off the top because you're trusting God with the rest. You don't squirrel away everything, and if there's anything left over after you've over-insured everything, after you've made sure that there's no way that you can lose what you have, then if there's anything left over, I'll give it to you, God. That's the inverse of trusting God. But trusting God is right off the top. And if I have left over to insure things, then I'll do that later. And that was the first fruits discipline of the Old Testament. Now he's saying, you have the Holy Spirit as the first fruits, as the pledge, the promise, the guarantee, that the rest of salvation is coming. And what's the rest of salvation? Well, it includes your physical bodies. And so we long for it, we hope for it, not like we long or hope for our favorite sports team to win a season, but a sure hope, a hope that's founded on something real. It's what Jesus Christ purchased, and he rose out of that tomb bodily to show you that it is a complete redemption and not something piecemeal or halfway. And he tells us, this physical hope that we have, this, this thing that we wait for that is a physical redemption, in verse, at the end of verse 23, the redemption of our very bodies, he says in verse 24, in this hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. There was a time when a, a mom who had a child struggling with a 
an injury from birth. He'll never be the same. He won't run like other kids run. He won't be able to play sports like other kids play. And he's self-conscious about it. He's got to wear certain clothes because it has to fit his deformity. And this person is not a believer that I know. And asked me, what advice would you give me to coach my son through this in life? And the only thing I could think of was an eternal hope. That foot will never be the same until and unless in Christ his body receives freedom from the corruption of that deformity. And I could tell on the look of the face it was the worst advice she's ever heard in her life. I want something now. I want something practical. That's not going to work for my kid. It only doesn't work for your kid because you don't believe it. What other hope is there for someone with a deformity? God created me like this? No, corruption made you like that. What is God going to do about it? Well, he did something about it. He did something about it when Jesus walked out of that tomb and conquered death. How else can we stare death in the face and say, you have no sting? If we entered into eternity without bodies, death won. God created the body, it was good, sin entered, and death took out the body. Now we just have bodiless experiences for eternity. Death wins. But death, where is your sting? Zero. Zero sting. Because my body will be better then than it ever could have been in the garden, even had we not sinned. That's amazing. Because we're not going to just get new bodies, we're going to get redeemed bodies, and you can't get a redeemed body if there wasn't a fall. God's plan is perfect, and it ends in the perfection of those who are his children, and that perfection includes perfected bodies. And so we hope in it, and this hope we were saved, verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now if you're like me, you're thinking, what is it really going to be like? You know, I, I don't know. Jesus had scars. Do we have scars? Some of us have scars. We're like, I really hope not. Some of you might have cool story scars where you're like, that'd be cool if that stayed. I'd like to tell that story for eternity. And others of you are like, no, I'd like my eye back. Thank you very much. I, I don't know why Jesus had remaining scars or remaining holes. Let me just throw this one out. Maybe it takes a moment for that to close. I don't know. Then, of course, Paul says we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, so that doesn't work. I, I don't know. And I think the reason why we don't know is because that's part of what hope is, right? You have an idea of what it's going to be like, but you don't know exactly. It's like if you have a favorite author who keeps cranking out books, six books in, the books are perfect, and book seven is coming out. You're not going, I don't know, I think I'll read book seven, but I'm not sure. You know what this author's got. You know what the author's like. You know how the author writes. So you have an idea, but you don't know the plot, the story. You haven't read it yet. So there's hope. It's not a flimsy hope. It's not an unreasonable hope. You've read the previous six books. But that seventh book or that seventh movie or that thing that's coming out, you know based on the credentials of what has gone before, the first fruits, you know that the completion is going to be awesome, whether you can imagine the details or not. Now, some people will say we're going to have powers and we're going to be flying around and move things with our minds. You know, they point to Jesus, how he went through walls, the, the, the room was closed, and, he just, and his resurrected body just showed up in the room. You remember that? When he's breaking bread with the disciples, and as soon as they break bread, they realize who he is, and he's gone. So, like, he teleports? 
And some people will say, well, in our redemption bodies, we're going to be like Jesus, and so probably we'll have teleportation powers. The problem I have there is in his non-resurrected body, he's walking on water. He's multiplying fish in a basket. So how much of it is that he has a resurrected body and how much of it is that he's God? (laughs) We're not looking forward to become divine beings. But I think we're going to have uh, some surprises. I think we're going to be surprised how amazing our bodily experience will be when the body itself isn't cursed and we move about in an uncursed creation. I don't need to fly. I don't need to teleport. I just want to be able to do that uh, without getting tired so easily. I want to be able to do that without getting sick. I want to be able to do that without getting eaten by something. Right? And so we long for this real, physical thing, even though we don't see it, somehow not seeing it breeds patience within us. I don't know exactly how this works, but he says if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So some mystery in what it's going to be like is okay, because he's saying that's what hope is. Hope is what you don't see. That makes sense, and that's normal, to have questions about it. Perfectly fine. That's what hope is. But when you have that hope, this hope that you can't quite see, but you also at the same time know that it's sure, it affords you the ability to wait for that thing that you're hoping for, that redemption, with patience. And this is the key to suffering. We wait for it. We wait for freedom from corruption, even in the suffering that the world will bring specifically to Christians, we wait for it with patience. So Paul is saying, if you're going to survive a jail cell, if you're going to sing songs in a prison, if you're going to survive being torn from your family, if a church can come back from an active shooter, if you're going to survive suffering is because you have a good idea of what it is that you're hoping for and not a flimsy idea that you got from a comic book somewhere or a Christian card. But from what the text tells us about creation and physicality and the wholeness of redemption, a kind of redemption where death doesn't win. That doesn't mean we enjoy suffering. That doesn't mean we, we hope for something to happen. Oh, I hope it's my generation when we all get jailed. We don't long for that. But we recognize that's a regular part of what it means to be a Christian. And God does it on purpose, doesn't He? It's part of what it means to make us Christians, to make us adopted into His family. And that's what prompts you to cry at the end of verse 16. Just go back up really quick. Abba, Father, why are you crying that? You're crying that because it hurts to be a Christian. And you need Dad. If our lives are too easy, then we won't long for the next one. And So God, in His wisdom, in His sovereignty, allows things to come into your life now to make you long for Him and for what he promises later. 
Let's not be too wrapped up in now. And let's not be own unbelievers. This is all they have. The, the unbelieving parent can only tell their kid, you know, you're super special because of your deformity. Don't let anyone keep you down because of your deformity. But deep down, that kid knows this is messed up. Only the Christian has a purpose in suffering. Only the Christian can find meaning in persecution. And that's not just something to say to make us feel comfortable. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. We think about creation all around us. We think about creation of our bodies. And we long for that. Not hoping only that we dodge difficulties and suffering. Not chasing difficulties and suffering. But when they come, to embrace them. And allow it to train us in the discipline of patience. Patience. We can wait for it eagerly. We can wait for it with patience because we know it's awesome what's coming. The next chapter, the next book in this series is going to be amazing. Because God's writing it. Let's pray. Fathers, we close in this song of worship. We pray that you would receive it from hearts that including mine, that probably don't fully grasp this promise, this pledge, that don't fully understand what it is. And we thank you that Paul has helped us see that it's not something we're supposed to see fully. And we pray that as we sing this song, we would sing it from hearts that are hopeful, from hearts that uh, understand that uh, suffering comes in many different shapes and forms and sizes. As it comes, would you prepare us for it? Would you prepare us for it by giving us a focus on hope that is informed by your word and not just imaginations or false teachings that have crept into the church throughout history, but a biblical hope that is founded on your promise of what's to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name.